0: Hello, Kindred. Nice to see you guys. Hope you're feeling good. Everybody's doing OK? Doing OK? You're doing better than five already. i am oh, got to see that. Hey, uh, real quick, before we get started, on Monday, I think it was, we had something really cool happen. Two of the wonderful members of our worship team sang the national anthem at the Avalanche game. And I am just super proud of them. So they did an amazing job. Uh, It's the Luikowski sisters. I'm going to say their name because I think I got it right. So I'm going to keep saying it over and over. The Luikowski sisters, they killed it. And uh, uh, proud of them. The Avalanche uh, also lost. So that's okay. (laughs) Hey, I love this time of year. This is my favorite time of year. And even when they're talking about a spring snowstorm this weekend, it still makes me happy because it's spring. And like the word spring, that's totally great. The last three days, a little windy for my taste, but beautiful, right? Just really, really great. But I really love this time of year because one of my favorite things in the entire world is about to happen. The baseball season is about to start. I love baseball. I've loved it my whole life. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of crazy about it. I can, I, my favorite class in college, that I took a history of baseball class. They actually gave me credit for that. It was incredible. Um, my earliest memory of, as a kid is like being six years old and having my favorite team win a playoff game for one of the only times they've done it my entire life. Uh, this guy named Steve Garvey, which five of us and who that is, hit a home run in game, uh, game four of the playoffs against the Cubs and the Padres, went to the World Series. It was a great, great time. When I was eight, my dad came home from work and he looked super nervous. Nervous, and I said, What's going on? He said, They traded your favorite player, and I can still picture the spot on the stairs in my house where I collapsed and wept for like an hour. I got over it two years later. Um, I I still schedule my life around Padres games, which is a really sad way to live, but I do it because I love it. I have mementos everywhere in my house, they clutter up any place that Josie lets me put them, which is very few places these days, but I love baseball. So when I was about 10 years old, uh, all I wanted in life was a Barry Bonds Fleer rookie card. Like I could, I talked about it every day. My dad's from Pittsburgh, so I liked this, the, the Pirates. I really wanted to, to you know, get this Barry Bonds rookie card for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I was sure this guy was gonna be better than Babe Ruth. Like I was just sure of it. At ten, and at 10, he was my favorite player. I said, I have to have that card. Well, here's the problem. It costs $38. So they had it at the mall. It was $38. When I was 10 years old, $38 sounded like a million dollars, right? I don't know if you guys can kind of remember that space. I made $3 a week allowance, but after you buy Slurpees and candy, it's gone. Like, there's, it's really hard to make $38 and, and, and to save that up. But I was sure that once I got a hold of that card, I would just bank it away. And, and it wouldn't be a matter of if, but just when I was going to be a millionaire for having that card, right? Right? So I did the most unnatural thing to me at 10. I started saving I had this garage sale where I sold all my Star Wars toys for like 20 bucks. And I'm gonna ask you to please ignore the fact that those things are probably worth thousands of dollars now. And I did that anyway. I got about half of it that way. I scrimped and I saved and I begged my parents for a dollar here and a dollar there. And finally, I had about $40. We headed down to the mall, this place called Parkway Plaza, that's horrible. And I spent $38 plus tax and I got that Barry Bonds rookie card, right? All that was left was the kickback. Let the time pass and count my money, right? But the strangest thing happened. You know, after, after setting records and becoming one of baseball's best players you know, in history, suspicion kind of started to set in that maybe the fact that Barry Bonds' head had grown three times its normal size and he had the body of the Hulk, people started thinking maybe this guy's cheating. And I don't know, you can't prove it, but maybe this guy was cheating. And all of a sudden, the market dropped out from under Barry Bonds rookie cards, right? So I still have that card. I searched for it today. I was going to bring it with me. can't find it, but I have it somewhere. And it's smoking hot on eBay, trending at about a dollar, right? There it is. So I lost, right? I traded everything I had, all of my Star Wars collection included, for that card. I also, uh, for the record, passed on Bitcoin when somebody tried to sell it to me a few years ago and made fun of them for it. But we'll talk about some other time, okay? So tonight, what I want to do is I wanted to just read a couple of these things called parables that Jesus told in the book of Matthew. And so to kick us off, I want to talk about what a parable is. So the word parable, it means to cast alongside, or the Greek word really tells us that it means to place next to each other. And so Jesus was telling these stories. He really was, he was casting an analogy alongside a truth. Jesus tells about 35 parables in the Gospels, give or take, and each one of them is very rich in meaning. And In all but a couple cases, he doesn't tell us exactly what he's trying to say. He doesn't offer an explanation. Only those few times that he does. There's three different distinct kinds of parables that Jesus uses. One's a simile, one's a metaphor, and then there's allegories. And so tonight we're looking at a simile. If you're like me and you like the English class and that matters to you at all, we're going to be looking at a simile tonight. Jesus, he used these parables, uh, and all of a sudden, in Matthew 13, he starts telling these stories, these parables. And I think it took even his disciples by surprise, because we're about halfway through the book of Matthew, close to it, when he all of a sudden changes his tactics and starts telling uh, stories. And so in Matthew 13, we see his disciples come to him and ask him, why do you speak to the people in parables? A couple of verses later, Jesus answers, and it's a really long answer, and it's a good answer. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Those seen, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. So in essence, Jesus has decided that in order to invite the people that he's encountering into a better life, In order to invite them into living a better story with their own life, he would start by telling stories himself. And even even though he knows a few things and what he's trying to get at here, he knows that most people aren't going to understand what he says, right? He knows that those that do understand probably will eventually arrive on that understanding after thinking about it and reflecting on it later. And, And I think he also knows that most people won't do that. Most people won't go home and think about it. For the same reason that when I get home and I'm tired at night, that I'd rather click on a rerun of Shark Tank than go read like a Jane Austen novel or something, right? It's just, it's easier. But the promise is this, that for those who do the work, for those who really go after and look for what he's teaching, Jesus says a great reward is for them on the other side. And in his answer here, Jesus, he's quoting a couple of prophets, but in particular, the last part of what Jesus says is lifted from this book called Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. And it's a particularly poignant thing because Isaiah's words, they were words that God spoke to Isaiah. They were his words that he said, please tell the people these things. So Isaiah, he quotes and tells the people God's words. And at the end of this encounter with God, Isaiah says that he has been ruined. That's the word he uses. He says, God, when you revealed a little bit of your glory to me, a little bit of who you really are, when you let me have an encounter with you, it ruined me for the things that I used to be. And it's a good thing. See, Isaiah, he gave up, at that point, he gave up everything. He left it all behind, and he took on the posture of a servant and said to God, send me wherever you might send me. And in fact, he says, he stands up and says, here I am, send me to wherever, you, wherever that might be. Jesus is talking in the presence of his disciples, and his disciples, as we've been looking at for months now, they did the same thing. They left everything and they said, I volunteer to go to the places that you might send me to do the work that you have. So I think Jesus is making this connection, right? Isaiah warned us in this passage that Jesus quoted that a day was coming where people would be so callous to God that they wouldn't be able to make sense of anything that he said. That they wouldn't, they wouldn't be hungry for his words, but instead they would want to argue against what they were. They want to choose their own ways and sometimes even claim that their own ways are his ways because it's easier. And so now Jesus is saying, here we are, it's happened, we're in that moment, and it's time to do something about it. And his choice and the thing that he employs is a tactic that I really believe works. And I know it works for me. A story gets my attention a lot faster than a directive or a command. I love watching documentary movies. I don't know if anybody else does or if I'm just like an old nerd, but like I, I love them. And this time of year, uh, they put out the Oscar shortlist for like best documentary. There's like nine of them. They're gonna get it down to five at some point, but I like to try to watch as many of those as I can. Um, and so I, some of them are good. Some of them are terrible. Some of them I don't understand. I'm just gonna be totally honest. But um, I've watched two or three a week for the last few weeks. And there's, there's something about them that I don't always understand why they affect me so much, right? I'll get to the end of it and go, why was that so profound? But I feel this something, right, inside of me that I can't quite name. A few weeks ago, I watched this one on Netflix. It's called My Octopus Teacher. And like, it's weird. And I said it out loud earlier and I was like, maybe I should cut that because it's weird. But I did. I watched it twice. And um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a movie that's about a friendship between a man that dives and meets an octopus and they become they become pals. It's super bizarre. And it, honestly, at the end of the, the first time watching it, I couldn't stop thinking about it, right? I felt like, like there's something, it flipped some kind of switch inside of me that I couldn't figure out what it was. And I felt really dumb for it. So I watched it again and it was even more so. Like I'm like, this, this octopus teacher really got to me. See, there's something inside of me that, that watched that connection and it just kind of made me think, ah, that's profound. And now I'm, I'm gonna go pay somebody to help me figure out why because it's, it's kind of weird, right? Stories, stories connect us to things in ways that nothing else can. Now, Jesus, over the next several chapters of Matthew, he starts using these open-ended stories, and it clicks that something in the listeners that he's talking to. And it gives them things to think about. And I think across space and time, the way that Jesus is so amazing is a couple thousand years later, it still gives us the same kind of thing to think about, the same kind of place to arrive in where we have to continue to search for the meaning. And I think that's remarkable. So let's read tonight's parable. It's from Matthew 13, verse 44. It says this, it says, the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Okay, so I wanna start really practically because for me, the first thing that sticks out to me when I read that is the idea that something's buried in the field is a little strange to me but the audience that Jesus is speaking to wouldn't have thought much of it for a couple of reasons. One is that at this time, it was kind of a banking system to bury things that were important to you and hope that that, that they stayed hidden. They also kind of would refrigerate some things that way. It would just make sense to people that heard this this, uh, parable from Jesus that the premise was super simple and it makes the the brevity of this parable honestly all the more pronounced. Because immediately they would connect their own version of that Barry Bonds rookie card. Hopefully something better for them to think of what could possibly be buried in that field. Realizing this, that the kingdom that Jesus says he's ushering in, uh, even though it's impossible for us to fully grasp, it can be best understood by thinking of finding something so valuable that's worth giving up everything to attain. See, so, yeah, I think Jesus designed this parable to make us think immediately, what's worth it to me? Like, what would that take? I think it's pretty easy to get something generic like a suitcase stuffed full of money that would, people would say I would buy that field, right? If it was, if it was more money than what I paid for it. Uh, I was thinking like some really sweet 1980s yellow Lamborghini or something, I don't know. Like uh, uh, what would it be in that field that would make you say it's worth all that I have to get it? So regardless of that though, the fact is this, Jesus' story points out that the treasure that's hidden Uh, it's it's there, it's buried, and you can't find it on your own. And there's some implications to this. See, to be hidden implies that it's location, uh, it can't be revealed by anything that we can do. So no matter how smart we are, no matter how much wisdom we possess, no matter how much power we have in this world, no matter what our connections are, who we know, what our abilities are, what we're good at, that, that treasure can only be revealed to us. We can't find it ourselves. Jesus is telling us this, the kingdom of God, as revealed through Jesus himself, is shown to those who are truly seeking after it, and it's worth any price, giving up everything and anything in order to obtain it. Uh, The Apostle Paul, who who we keep quoting, he wrote these letters in the New Testament that that are just full of wisdom. He has a couple different times where this parable is obviously something that he thought about and, and, and wrote about. And there's a couple different passages I want to share tonight that I think really ha- like shine light on what Jesus is teaching that day. So Paul, he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, and, uh, and this is what he says. He says, Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. But as is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And you can see the obvious parallels just in that, in that verse right away. See, Paul's saying that the wisdom is hidden, but it's freely available to those who pursue Jesus, that the wisdom of God, and as a preview to this, uh, the fact that the kingdom of God, both in eternity and in the here and now, is better than anyone could ever dream or imagine, right? Paul promises us in, this, in the ensuing verses that the Holy Spirit searches us and knows us in a way that only the Holy Spirit can in all the ways that we wish as human beings that people would get us, that truly understand us, that they would go past the, the outside and to the place, past the deeds, past the things that we do into the place in our heart where we are truly who we are, as much as we desire for people to get that person that the Holy Spirit does. Verse 12 says this, "'Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God.'" And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul's saying this in short. Our relationship with the Spirit of the living God, who indwells a person who's surrendered to Christ, who says, I want Jesus to be what my life's about, that Spirit grants us access to that treasure as it lays buried in that field. Those that are in tune with the Spirit are described as really simply spiritual. And, and, and I really believe Paul's saying this. You can get to that place in a moment because it's all about access to God, which were granted through Jesus and Jesus only. But there's even more going on here than that. See, I think Paul really likes this simile uh, because he, his, so much of his writing, like I said, reflects on it. He's saying this to us. That treasure, that field, the thing that's there, the kingdom of God, it's, it's, it's not just something good, Right? He's saying the kingdom of God, that promise, is that something that is dug up can change everything. But I think Paul's also trying to let us know a couple things that that treasure is not. Here's what it's not. That treasure is not doing things better. It's not changing our behavior or sinning a little bit less. That treasure is not a simple behavior modification, no matter how dramatic the change might be or how difficult it might be. And those are all good things, but they're just not the thing because they aren't the point. The truth is that discovering the kingdom of God and selling off everything to obtain it is easier once you've experienced how incredible the freedom of not being held captive to trying harder and trying to please God really is. Here's the truth. We can't earn salvation. We can't earn the treasure in the field. We can't even pay for salvation, which is why the simile is just a simile. Yeah, the entire creation of the Protestant faith and the breaking off of the Catholic Church was about this. You can't purchase that which God freely gives to people. Even literally selling everything physically that we have can't get us there. But once we stumble upon the prize that is Jesus and we truly experience Jesus in our real life, we become willing to give up anything to possess his spirit, his love, and his acceptance because what's attained through Jesus is beyond the value of anything that we would give up. It's like trading an ounce of garbage for the bank account of Jeff Bezos, right? It's that simple, and it's that profound. That's the simile. In his letter called Philippians, Paul tackles this idea uh, even further, and he tackles it head-on in a pretty famous passage. It's in Philippians 3, and he starts off this passage by saying this. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, and he warns them, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. And Paul he's about to get into some pretty heavy things here in a second but he starts off by reminding us the church to find joy in Jesus and to avoid what he calls dogs right or people who are out to bring you down and I'm going to circle back to that here in just a minute cuz next Paul writes something to me that is just insane he says this he says whatever were gains to me i now consider loss for the sake of Christ basically this anything good that i've ever accomplished anything that i've ever done is actually nothing compared to Jesus because he's that much better. And he says this next, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, says rubbish in a lot of versions, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or keeping rules, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul, he goes even further here. He's saying, not only is anything good that I have done essentially nothing, he says, but everything, everything is nothing compared to knowing Jesus as the king of my life, the king of my own kingdom, and to have Jesus' kingdom collide with mine. He says this: not only is that stuff not good and nothing, he says it's essentially it's trash. And it's really interesting to me because he uses a word here, and it's really a derivative of two words that means to the dogs. So Paul's saying this, and some people think he's cussing. Uh, Some people don't. I've read articles, and people are arguing. Regardless, this is what we know. We know that Paul's being extremely emphatic, saying this. He's going out of his way to make a point. And what I think he's trying to say is that everything else in the world next to Jesus is like trash that you throw to the dogs. It's not fit for human consumption. It's worthless. And I thought thought about this a lot this week, because we're talking about the first century A.D., like the definition of this is different than what we hold today. We're not talking about when you send back an undercooked steak at the Chili's, right? Like this is not that. We're talking about pre-refrigeration, pre-health department, foul smelling garbage. Stuff that throwing to a dog, right, would be like the animals that Paul compared evildoers to a few verses ago. So Paul's really saying fit to be thrown to the people who are out to harm you, to people who are evil, to those who we want nothing to do with. And that's the standard that he's holding it up to. Everything is like that compared to knowing Jesus. And Paul's saying this, if you know Paul's story, you know all of the jail time, all of the beatings, the marginalization, the abandonment, all of the things that he's experienced, all of the hatred that he's endured. It's not just okay, it's not just manageable. Paul's saying it's worth it when you place it next to knowing Jesus, the honor of becoming more like him, little step by little step. So when I can think about it this way, that for me, even my greatest efforts to be good or to do good, even my, my best efforts to figure things out and to, and to grow and to, and to say, Jesus, look what I can do. They're just like trash that you throw to the dogs. And when I recognize just how great Jesus is, it leads me to a place where I'm ready to give everything away to buy that field and obtain the kingdom. But here's what I have to keep reminding myself this week. Paul and Jesus, they both tell us it takes everything. I have to trade my self-righteousness for his actual righteousness. I have to trade my need for justice, for the ways of, of, of Jesus that are just. I have to trade my selfishness for his inclusion. I have to trade my need to be right for his propensity to love people even when they're wrong. And I can keep going. And I'm sure if you started making a list for yourself, you could too. And my question for us tonight is this. What do your trades look like? You know, what's it look like for you to give it all away little by little in this simile to sell one thing to take a hold of another? In this next verse in Matthew, Jesus tells us a, a parable that's very similar to this one, but it's just a little bit different. And it's what he tells us. He tells us about a merchant and he finds a pearl of great value. And again, kind of a parallel story. He goes and he sells everything that he has to buy it and then he retires, he's done. He gives it all up, and then he gets to rest. Now here's what Jesus, I think Jesus is zooming in on this treasure in the field by saying this, Jesus is the pearl, he is the treasure, and he specifically is the treasure that fulfills our greatest needs. Jesus is the the treasure that satisfies our deepest longings, that makes us whole and makes us clean that calms and quiets the noise of all of our inner lives and the stuff going on. He gives us hope for the future where he tells us a kingdom awaits us that's worth trading it all for, selling it all off, giving it all away. So, Kendra, here's what I want to do tonight. If you're willing, would you stand up with me? On this Wednesday night in the middle of the week, I just want to invite you to close your eyes. To block out the noise of life and go to that place in your own mind and your own heart that it's just you and God. Nobody can hear your thoughts or, or know what you're thinking or, or, or feeling except you and except Jesus. And I want to invite you into a space where if you know Jesus, if if you follow Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit as your guide, I want you to ask them tonight, what would you have me sell? what would you have me trade? And maybe it's a lot of things and you're able to do that, but maybe it's just this one thing. I want to challenge us tonight to pick out something that we know we could easily give up or trade, not because better behavior gets us closer to Jesus, but because we want that treasure. We want our ways to be like his. We want to get closer to him, not because, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his. His. I want you to ask yourself, how will that get you closer to that? What's that look like? And if you don't know Jesus, but it's compelling to you to think about this idea, I want to invite all of us into a space to say to to Jesus tonight, I want to leave here just a little bit different than I came in. I I won't be fixed, but I want to be closer to that pearl that quiets the noise, that gives me an opportunity to grab a hold of the little slice of this kingdom that we know is good. So, Kendra, let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful that you give us Jesus. Jesus who gives us rest. Jesus who quiets the storms of our lives. Jesus who invites us into this story by telling us a story and tells us that something better is available to us at all times. God, I pray for us tonight that we wouldn't try to correct behavior, but instead we would try to get closer to your heart, that we'd allow you to steer us towards things that you have for each one of us. And God, I thank you as we get closer and closer to being able to be a community that's locked arm in arm again. God, as we get closer and closer to this time where life might look a little bit more like it used to, I pray that God, that you would help us tonight to leave here just a little bit different than we came in. That normal for us would be redefined by seeking that treasure in that field. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.